This past week, we've been celebrating what we call Holy Week, and uh, this is the week where from Sunday to Sunday, we um, celebrate and we remember and we think about and, um, and we reflect on everything that Jesus has done for us. And so it's a Sunday to Sunday time. It's a time of slowing down to behold. And I'm going to come back to that word some more. We come to behold Jesus, his final days, his last supper with his disciples, his time in the garden, including his arrest, his trial, the crucifixion, and his death. Saturday in scripture is silent. It was the Jewish Sabbath. For the disciples, it was deafeningly silent. Now, there's two things that characterize the passage that Sandy read earlier. Fear and joy, and we'll talk about both. But before I dig into the passage, those verses 1 through 10 of Matthew 28, I want to look at what's on each side of that passage, because it helps us to understand what was going on. Now remember, the Sabbath was silent for everyone, except, except for the people that should have been most observant of the Sabbath. The same people who criticized Jesus for healing people on the Sabbath spent their Sabbath not in synagogue worship. Instead, they go to Pilate because they're still worried about Jesus. They remember the words of Jesus that he would rise after three days. And so they go to Pilate and they petition Pilate. Matthew 27 verses 63 through 64 says, The next day... That is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, they don't even use Jesus' name. We remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse. Than the first. Matthew tells us that Pilate granted their request. Now, that's on the front end of the passage that we read earlier. One quick note when the Pharisees use the word sir, in the original language, it's the Greek word Lord, which can simply be a sign of respect, but it's the same word that Christians would use to address Jesus except they would use a capital L, Lord. In Matthew, there's some irony in that believers call Jesus Lord, while unbelievers call Pilate and Herod and Caesar Lord. Remember the words of the Pharisees in the crowd when they they protested Pilate mockingly placing a sign above Jesus' head on the cross that said, Hail, King of the Jews. They wanted him to take the sign down. John in his gospel tells us that they responded saying, take down the sign. We have no king but Caesar. And one might add his representatives, Pilate and Herod. Now that's everything on the front end of this passage. Now on the back end of this passage, just following the resurrection, we're told that the guards who had been at the tomb, they run to the chief priest to tell them what had happened. In Matthew 28, 11 through 13, it says that while they were going, behold, 
Some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Notice that it says they gave a a sufficient sum of money. What that means is that there was some kind of negotiation that took place. The guards needed assurances that they would be protected by the Pharisees, but the Pharisees also needed to know that their secret would be held safe. And so there was a deal that was made. There was some kind of negotiation that happened, and the guards were compensated appropriately to protect the chief priests, and the chief priests would try to protect the guards. But in the middle... That's on the back end. But in the middle, in the middle of these two bookends, we have two women and their testimony. And one might ask is, is where are the 12 disciples? We know that the treasurer betrayed Jesus. We know that the leader of the disciples denied Jesus three times. And we know that the rest deserted Jesus. In fact, Frank Morrison, when he wrote the book, Who Moved the Stone? He comments that the gospel... The gospel writings do not read like a story invented years after the events to try to prove the story of the resurrection. He says that they read instead like reportage, like interviews that happened with the people that were there. It's easier to argue that the Pharisees and the religious leaders took Jesus' words more seriously than the disciples did. The disciples refused to present themselves in any kind of positive light. They confess, one of us betrayed Jesus, one of us denied Jesus, all of us deserted Jesus. Only the women were at the foot of the cross. Only the women go to the tomb. And Matthew 38, 1 through 10 is their story. And so I want to walk back through their story. Now, three times in this passage, there's a very important word. It doesn't seem like an important word. And it's a word that we don't use often today. It's the word behold. Behold. Some versions don't translate it as the word behold, because it can also be translated as look or see. But some translators use the word behold because it actually conveys The kind of word that it is a little bit better than other words. It's an imperative verb. Behold. Meaning, look and see. Check it out. Catch this. So, behold isn't used very often today. But there's over 1,200 times that this little word is used in the original language of the Bible. If I counted correctly, it's used at least six times in Matthew 27 and 28 and three times in the verses 1 through 10. We read the word behold. We hear the word behold. This imperative command to take a look. It's this command to look at the credible incredible. Did you catch that? The credible incredible. And so as we think about the question is, is how can anyone believe what happened? How can we believe the incredible 
we're going to look at what Scripture says is credible. The Pharisees were obviously worried enough to make the tomb secure. They were more worried about Jesus' words and Jesus disappearing than the disciples were. They believed in the unbelievable, at least in the sense that they didn't want to give anyone the opportunity to believe unbelievable things. Hidden in all of this is the fact that it would be hard to believe that the disciples could get up the nerve to do anything other than run and hide because that's all that they'd been doing over the last 24 hours. So the word behold in verses 1 and 2 of 28. Now after the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold... There was a great earthquake for an angel. The Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And I love this picture is, is you can just, you, you can just imagine this angel coming and he rolls back the stone and he sits on it like a guy that just made a touchdown and spiked the ball. Right? I mean, I, I, I sense is that there was some very holy gloating going on here. I had to think about that for just a minute is, is how, do, how do you make that, that gloating sound good? Holy gloating. I like that. So, so he's just spiked the ball and said, catch that. And it's right in this where the women are told, were told to behold. Look and see. Look and Listen. We're told there's a great earthquake. Simply arrival, the arrival of the angel caused an earthquake. Uh, the gospel writer Mark tells us that the stone was a great stone. It wasn't just a little stone. It was a great stone. He also tells us that the women were on their way to the tomb. They started thinking is, is how are we going to roll away the stone? They fully expected to find a stone over the tomb. They also carried with them burial spices to prepare Jesus' body. Now, there's a lot to unpack when you think about this, but, but when you think about it, they fully expected to find Jesus' body. And then there's this angel who addresses the problem, rolls aside the stone, and then sits in victory on top of that stone. And Matthew, and we can argue the rest of the gospel writers, they don't treat this as something where they're trying to make the details fit together. They point us to a real day in history with two real people. They're coming to the tomb on Sunday, which we call the Lord's Day. And it can be argued that because of the resurrection, this is the new Sabbath. Inaugurated by a new era, initiated by the resurrection. New day, new era, new Sabbath, new covenant. Coincidence? I don't think so. We also know that the gospel writers, if they wanted to make the story more believable, they would never have included women. They certainly would have presented themselves in a better light. But women, women were on the edges of culture. Their testimony literally could not be used in a court of law. Jewish men literally prayed. We actually have the written prayers from the Jewish religious books. Lord, thank you that I am not a slave, that I'm not a Gentile, and that I'm not a woman. 
And yet the gospel writers include the women's testimony. If the gospel writers were writing to make the resurrection more palatable to the people of the day, they would not have included the women. And all four gospel writers include the women. The two Marys were there for the burial of Jesus, and they returned on Sunday, the day after the Jewish Sabbath. And behold, an angel. The imperative verb, behold, see, look, look at this. And we're told that the angel invites them to see the tomb. So the significance here, it starts with this focus on the angel. His presence causes an earthquake. His appearance is like lightning. His clothes were as white as snow. His actions, oh, they're pretty awesome. Rolling back the stones, sitting in victory, shock and awe on the guards. Who literally... It says they shook, and not because of the earthquake, because of the angel, and they fainted. Now, when angels are present in Scripture, there's almost always fear. Because when an angel is present, it often means that the judgment of the Lord has come. And yet the angel to the women says, do not fear. It indicates that there is good news. What's the good news? I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Verse 5, the end of verse 5. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. There's no description of the resurrection. There's no shaking body or shimmering. There's no moving. There's no bright light over the body, clothes bursting off of the body. No description of the resurrection. The only description we get is the effects of the resurrection. And the tomb is not the only sign that Jesus is alive. It's just a start. The stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled away to let the women in. The women were let in to see he is not here for he is risen see the place where he lay and risen is used twice in a row anytime words are used twice in a row you should underline them twice in your bible if you are okay with that and maybe mark them in your mind he doesn't tell them to look for jesus in your thoughts He doesn't say, hey, feel Jesus in your soul. He doesn't say, hey, observe nature and get a sense of Jesus. He doesn't say, feel him in the wind or see his love in the flowers that bud in the spring. He says, see the place where he was laid. And then the angel says, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I've told you. Behold, he's going before you. You will see him. That's the second behold. And then we're told in verse 8, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell the disciples. 
Why fear and joy? Why, why those two? Well, given the circumstances, wouldn't we all have some fear? And yet, because of what's happened, we're told that joy is there. And the joy pushes them forward on their new mission. And then it says in verse 9, And behold, third time, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! Now, notice here is that Jesus isn't a ghost and he's not a spirit. Because it says, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. They took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Now this is where we have the heavenliness of Jesus and the earthliness of Jesus right there. Fully God and fully man. And we're told that they took hold of his feet. You can't grab onto the feet of a ghost. They took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Matthew tells us of ten times where Jesus is worshipped in the book of Matthew. The other interesting thing. I got this from a guy who wrote a book uh, about Matthew's gospel, Douglas Sean O'Dell. And I I thought it was really interesting. He says, Christianity is a touchy-feely religion. And um, usually when people would say something like that, we could take it as an offense. But in a lot of ways, it's actually a compliment. It's faith with hands and feet. The women touched the feet of Jesus. That when Thomas just couldn't quite believe the resurrection, he said, I won't believe unless I can touch his side and his hands, put my fingers in the nail holes. And we're told that Jesus, when he says, when, when he appears to Thomas, that he, he says, touch and blessed are those that don't need to touch to believe. But it has physicalness. It's a faith that we have heard with our ears and seen with our eyes and touched with our hands. Our highest and holiest holiest holidays are as tangible as human skin. A baby in a manger. And a man at whose feet we can fall and touch and worship. And we're told to behold Behold, look and see the imperative. And so we need to behold as as we celebrate Easter, it's important for us to behold. And one of the things that is important for us to behold is, is our own need. Is to behold our need. Because when we look at the world, we look around and we see that things are not right. Things are not good. We see a lot of hurt and pain and suffering. And so let us behold our need. But then also let us look inside and let's behold our own sin. That we find is is that things aren't just right out there. They're not right in here. And so we behold the fact is, is that we need, we need help. We need help. And then let us behold Jesus, who is our Savior from sin. 
Let us behold Jesus. But in all of that, we should never hold on to our sin. That when we, when we really think about the brokenness that we see all around us, when we think about even what's broken inside of us, that we should be able to say is, is that, hey, this isn't right. There's just too much wrong in the world. And there's too much wrong inside of me. And there should be some sense in which we say is, is what do I do? What do I do about my brokenness? What do I do about every lie that I've ever told? Every lust that I've ever had, whether it's the lust of the lies or the lust of the flesh, every prideful thing that I've ever thought, the pride of life. What do I do about all of that? And the thing is, is that, that our whole world is trying to not have to deal with that. In fact, one person said is, is that we're being entertained to death in order to keep our eyes off of our brokenness. That we're being distracted and entertained to death so that we don't actually have to deal with our brokenness. And yet we're invited to look at our brokenness, to behold our sin, and yet not to hold on to our sin and instead to hold on to Jesus. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. That's the picture that we have that the gospel writers tell us is that they tell us that Jesus stepped out of heaven. He was born in the flesh. That he lived the life that we can't live. That he was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the picture of that lamb there is, is that he's going to become the lamb the sacrificial lamb who dies <clears throat> for us on the cross. And we're invited to bring all of our sin to him and to give him our sin. And when we give him our sin, that he takes the punishment for it on the cross and that we receive his righteousness. <clears throat> and so we don't hold on to our sin. Instead, we hold on to Jesus. We hold on to Jesus. That's really the Easter message. The hope of the resurrection is that we get to let go of the brokenness that we have. We give it to him and he gives us his perfection and healing. And this side of heaven <clears throat> then this side of heaven, we seek to be more like Jesus. Constantly giving him what we so desperately need to get rid of. And him giving us what we so desperately need. Himself. Behold, Jesus. Will you hold on to him today? We're going to close with a video. That just invites us to trust. To trust in Jesus. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, if you've never really just asked him to be your Lord and Savior and to forgive your sins, it's sometimes hard to understand all of this is, is I certainly didn't understand it all when, my, when I put my faith in Jesus. But if you've never put your faith in Jesus, 
that you can literally just say is, is, hey, Jesus, I don't understand all of this, but I do understand that I have a lot of sin and brokenness in my life. And I'd really like for that to be forgiven. And so, Jesus, would you take all of my sin, every lie I've ever told, and everything that's, that's broken and bad about me, and would you forgive it? Thank you for paying the price for my sin on the cross, and would you forgive me for my sins, and would you be my Lord and Savior? It's that simple. You don't have to make yourself better first. You don't have to um, try to get rid of your sin first. Is all you have to do is let go of your sin and hold on to Jesus. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have some time during the video, and it's a time for you to be able to pray, a time for you to be able to thank God for his son, Jesus. And to say, thank you, Lord, because he is risen. Father and Lord God, we thank you. And Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, that you just speak to each one of us about whatever our need is. And Lord, for some of us, it's just those doubts and the struggles with everyday sin. And just that daily commitment to you is, is Lord, just help me to follow you and to be more like Jesus. And then, Lord, for some, it may be is, is just never having really dealt with you and dealt with our sin. So, Father, I pray, Lord, um, that, that, Lord, that for everyone just, who wants to just say yes, yes, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior and forgive me of my sins. Lord, thank you that your word says that you cast them as far as the east is from the west and that you remember them no more. And so, Lord, may you just bless this time as we close and worship and each of us just personally just coming before you with whatever we have. We thank you, Lord, in the name of Jesus.